Hello and welcome to Armenian Studies podcast series. I am Brigitta Davidans and I'm a research fellow from Estonian Academy of Music and Theatre and I'm glad to interview Dr. Heiko Tijan today. Heiko is a British conductor and musicologist of Armenian descent. He has served, for example, as music director of the Chamber Orchestra of Sussex, the Ensemble du Parc, and the Non-Bohemian Chamber Orchestra. And he has also guest conducted basically around the world. Heik lives and works now in the Czech Republic, and he has served as chief conductor of the orchestra and chorus of Charles University in Prague since 2001. He's also seen a deacon of the Holy Armenian Apostolic Orthodox Church. Heik's musicological research entails, among others, the points of interaction of Armenian church music with the Byzantine and Ottoman classical traditions. Lately he published incredibly interesting research on Armenian hymnal, and one of the reasons for our discussion today is the monograph called Tantizian and the Music of the Armenian Hymnal. I thought that before we start to talk about your research and this very interesting book, I also wanted to ask a bit about your background. I know that you're from UK, but you're also Armenian descent. So how did your family ended up in UK? Right. My family ended up in Cyprus, in fact. So I was born in Cyprus in 1878 when the British took over Cyprus from the Ottomans as a mandate in the first instance and not as a possession. So uh, the British had to be, had to administrate, but it was not yet British. So during that period, they desperately needed very quickly to have Ottoman laws translated into English. And the only person they found who could do that was my late great-grandfather, Apisorom Utujan, who used to live in Constantinople, and he was known to them. So in 1878, my great-grandfather was invited by the British to move from Constantinople to Cyprus so that he would act as a translator of state documents and translate Ottoman law into English, which he did, and it was published by uh, Oxford University Press. But uh, a little bit after that, in fact, uh, it was no longer useful because the British decided that Cyprus will no longer be a mandate, but it will be a British possession, whereupon Ottoman laws were no longer relevant. Although that book is still used from time to time by people for the purpose of academic research to see historically what the Ottoman laws were during the turn of the uh, 19th and 20th century. So in those circumstances, one part of the family uh, emigrated from Constantinople to uh, Cyprus. In fact, it was only my great grandfather. Uh, The rest of the family remained in Constantinople. Uh, And he was called Apisohom. And he was, in fact, the nephew of the well-known Apisom Utujian, who was a church musician also in Constantinople, who was one of Baba Hampartsum Limonjian's first pupils, and who founded the Armenian Evangelical Church, and who died at the age of 29. So I suspect that my great-grandfather may have been given the name Apisom in memory of his late uh, uncle. But there is a musical connection there. As for other parts of the family, on my maternal side, 
part of the family was in Cyprus already by the 18th century. That we know because the family home, which however was conquered by the Turks in 1963 and it is still occupied, but there, there was and there still is a black plaque which has the date something like, I think, 1790, something or other, and it has got the month written in Turkish but in Armenian letters. So, obviously, someone from that part of the family was already in Cyprus in the late 18th century. That's my mother's mother's side, and my mother's father's side was from historical Cilicia, from Alexandret, and he was very fortunate in that during the genocide, because he used to be an acolyte in the church and he would sing in church, though he was not a full deacon, uh, he was able to get special permission by showing a photograph of him using a deacon's attire, uh, pretending that he was a clergyman. He got permission from the local governor and he went to Jerusalem to the Armenian Patriarchate where he studied theology under Patriarch Ormanian and that actually saved his life. And then he moved to Cyprus. So part of the family was in Cyprus earlier, part of it is from Constantinople and part of it is from Cilicia. And I was born here but I spent much of my life in the UK where I also uh, studied and it's only a little more recently but it's it's getting on uh, for 20 years now um, uh, I've been living and working in the Czech Republic that was as a result of an, of an invitation of the then of the former already by then he was the former uh, chief conductor of the Czech Republic um, I attended some of his rehearsals while studying conducting at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London, devoted Czech repertoire, so I got to know him and he said, you seem to have a serious interest in Czech operas and symphonic works, why don't you come to Prague for a few months and specialize on this repertoire and establish some working relationships with local orchestras and opera theatres. And it took several years because there was a lot of bureaucracy, but eventually I did go. And then I was about to return to England, but due to uh, some rather fortuitous circumstances, you can say it's chance or the hand of God or whatever, uh, I was invited back. Um, I'd assisted at an opera house, and it turned out that the orchestra there um, wanted me to conduct them because the same musicians had a self-governing concert orchestra. And so I had an excuse to return to the Czech Republic, and then... I started getting uh, sufficient uh, conducting work to stay there, although I had traveled quite a lot to England to conduct there as well for a while, and I ended up staying in the Czech Republic, which is where I live. But at the moment of this interview, I'm visiting my parents in Cyprus, so in fact you're, see, you're hearing me, or our audience will hear me, and you can see me and hear me uh, in Nicosia in Cyprus, where I was born. Good. So your research concentrated on the music of the Armenian hymnal, more precisely on how hymns were reconstructed in the 19th century Constantinople. So what do you think, uh, what, what are the main contributions of the book to Armenian musicology and history writing? And Well, um, I think that there are two main things that emerged 
from the uh, work. And I have to say that I did not expect either of them. They emerged uh, in, a, in a slightly surprising way and in a delightful way, as far as I was concerned. Uh, one is that through uh, comparisons with Dundesian's transcriptions in Western notation and his posthumously published hymnal in the new Armenian musical notation, the Limongian, the Hampartzum Limongian notation, something that was invented during the very beginning of the 19th century. Through such comparisons, I think that it proved possible to clarify certain details of the Limongian notation, certain nuances uh, that have not been fully understood and indeed that have been really rather misunderstood. So, um, at least in the way in which Dundesian used this notation, it proved possible to clarify certain things which put us in a better position to read the music uh, with greater accuracy. So that's one thing which I think was very useful. But the second thing which emerged... Uh, partly by putting together Dundesian's various writings, because he was one of very few musicians, Armenian musicians of his time, to describe his procedures and to do so with great honesty. So by putting together his writings with his transcriptions, be they in the Hampartzum Limongian notation or the earlier handful of transcriptions in Western notation, it proved possible so to speak, to test his own theories and hypotheses and principles against what he had in fact done in actual fact. And uh, the result of such a comparison is very interesting. It shows, for one thing, that he himself chose sometimes to deviate from his own professed principles. And uh, that is in itself of very great interest, because then we ask, why is it that he did not stick to the principles that he himself declared in certain situations? What is specific to those situations, and what may have been his reasons for not adhering to his principles? Uh, but the second thing is that by asking such questions and trying to uh, work out some plausible answers to them, and by proceeding afterwards to look at what other Constantinopolitan church musicians have done who have also left us their own versions of the melodies of the Armenian hymnal, we can begin to see that, in fact, this was more general and it's not only Dundesian. And that means, in effect, we can work out the procedures that were used by Armenian church musicians in the 19th century to reconstruct and devise melodies for the Armenian hymns. And that is extremely interesting because we know that in the 19th century they could no longer read the medieval Armenian neumes, the Chaz notation, properly. They couldn't read it properly, but they still used it. And uh, this uh, study of mine actually sheds quite a lot of light on the manner in which they used it. Uh, that's interesting for two reasons. One, 
we would like to know where these melodies came from and how they were formed, and my work provides at least part of the answer. But the um, second interesting thing is that if we know the manner in which they made use of the neumes, that helps us uh, to avoid drawing incorrect conclusions when we compare the melodies with the neumes. So, for instance, very often, uh, whenever Dendesian, but not only Dendesian, it turns out that others also, uh, very often when uh, church musicians would see a particular combination of neumes lying on a particular syllable in a certain family of Armenian hymns that belong to a subspecies of a certain musical mode, when they saw that same combination of neumes recurring in different places, in different hymns and different stanzas, which belong to the same family, if in the case of one of those hymns they sang a particular turn of phrase, a particular melody like then when they saw the same neumes in other such examples from the same family, they would try to arrange their melody of the hymn in such a way that the, the same melodic fragment would be placed in the same place where those neumes appear. And this is something that they did quite explicitly, quite intentionally, with purpose. In other words, they tried to create and preserve some analogies. Now, if you don't know that this is what they did deliberately and knowingly, albeit without being able to understand the neumes themselves, because they could not tell what the neumes represent in the medieval uh, original uh, uh, sense. So if you don't know that this is what they did, you notice and you say, ah, you see the same melodies appearing where those neumes are appearing, so they could understand the medieval neumes. And that is a mistake that was made in the case of the fourth mode uh, plagal hymns, the Tagen Asteri hymns, by the Soviet-era musicologist Robert Atayan. He noticed that Tashtian's hymnal would have the same sort of melody during particular neumes in this category of hymns, and he would say, ah, so this is evidence that something was still preserved from the knowledge of the medieval times. But in fact, when you read the things that Tendesian says that he's doing, you realize that they knew that they didn't know the medieval meaning of the neumes, but they tried to preserve a sort of crude, a sort of macro-level correspondence. So if we're going to sing where we see uh, a put and a large pengorge and a small pengorge, for example, in a particular category of Tatsa Tarsevatskims, the auxiliary form of the fourth mode uh, uh, authentic uh, tone, as, as we refer to it uh, technically. Um, so, uh, when Denesian saw that, he tried to make a point of putting the same little melody, the same melody fragment on those instances. And in my book, I've tried to find such instances, and I refer to primary anchors uh, for recurring combinations of neumes where Dendesian and others always tried to put the same melody whenever they saw it. But there are secondary anchors where 
Something similar happened, but they were less rigorous, because sometimes there were reasons why it didn't suit them so much to to stick to that, so they didn't do it so rigorously and so uh, consistently. And these things had not been properly explored before, and it's very, very interesting. After all, these are more or less the melodies that are sung in Armenian churches today, still, and it is good to be able to understand a little bit where those melodies came from. They did not they did not come from thin air. They were constructed in this sort of way. To that we have to add a certain improvisatory quality because for a very long time Armenian church musicians, at least in Constantinople, would look at the neumes, even though they couldn't understand them, and sing something, looking at the neumes, using a combination of their knowledge of the musical properties of the mode and their memory, their recollection of certain model melodies that were floating in the air in that milieu at that time. Now, you could well ask, where did those melodies come from? And the answer is, unfortunately, I don't know nor can I judge how old such melodies may be. My suspicion is that they are probably not very old, but you cannot prove things one way or the other. And a third little thing that I would add that is interesting is that because Dendesian noted down different melodies at different times, uh, it's very interesting to compare his earlier transcriptions with the later ones, and that gives us, as it were, two different snapshots that are, uh, let's say, a couple of decades away from each other. And uh, now you will say 15 years, 20 years is not a very long distance, but in the 19th century it was quite a long uh, interval uh, because things were changing very quickly at that time. Westernization of Armenian melodies was already taking place. So the earlier transcriptions by Tendesian do really give us, from our present point of view, a rather more archaic impression. And so uh, in that uh, sense, uh, we can guess a little bit about the historical evolution of the melodies. Something similar we can do, of course, in the case of Venice, the Mkhitaryist tradition, because there we have transcriptions that were made in the 1860s by Pietro Bianchini, but also uh, melodies that were published at different times, uh, most recently in the 1950s and early 60s by the late father Levant Dayan, and so you can follow what is happening, and there are certain patterns. You find that the older melodies are less amenable to harmonization. They just don't work uh, in the way in which Western music works, or in the way in which the uh, harmonized uh, divine liturgy by Yekmalian or Komitas work, which work even if they try, and they did try, even if they try to preserve some of the idiosyncrasies and special flavor of Armenian traditional church music, nonetheless they create and resolve tensions by using harmonic, uh, a certain harmonic sense 
and the implications of a melody when you look at it horizontally it has a certain linear harmony you can when you hear or when you sing a melody from the later period um, it already suggests to you a certain harmonic basis so even if you happen to be against harmonization as many Constantinopolitan church musicians were nonetheless you are inclined to make sense of it in a harmonic way and there was a process of filtration even in Constantinople, even in the 19th century, and especially early in the 20th century, Gomidas, but also many others, even uh, Levon Chilingirian and others, they westernized, whether they wanted to or not, by choosing melodies that were more amenable to harmonization. And the earlier, more archaic melodies that have reached us via Tundesian or some other manuscript sources uh, one of which I discuss in my book, uh, these melodies, if you sing them, your first impression as a musician trained mostly in the Western tradition, as, as virtually all of us are nowadays, you find that that melody doesn't work. It seems to go zigzag. It seems to meander. That's the first impression. You even might be tempted to think this is not a good melody. But then when you get used to that idiom, you realize that that melody works differently. Uh, it does not have linear harmony, uh, an extreme. It's not like a Bach a solo violin a partita or sonata, which is most of the time just one voice, but when it moves around, it creates chords or it creates very clear implications, and you mentally think, ah, yes, that's the subdominant, there you'd put the dominant, and then it would resolve to the tonic and so on. So uh, later Armenian melodies do work in a similar way, although not in quite an extreme way. They don't have arpeggios, for example, or that sort of thing. But the earlier ones work in a more horizontal way, and they create their tensions, and they, they, they resolve those tensions uh, without recourse to something more vertical, without a basis of chords. Um, and so the earlier Tendesian transcriptions preserve a little impression of that as well, just a little snapshot. But when you put that together with other little bits and pieces, and we do not have very many early examples, unfortunately, but when you do that, you begin to see that uh, we have a kind of telescope in our hands uh, with which we can peer backwards into the more distant past than the 19th century. And that's quite exciting. Where could we hear such examples? Well, um, there are some manuscripts in private hands in Constantinople that I have been very fortunate to find and photograph, and I'm hoping in the not-too-distant future to publish an edition of one of them, which... <clears throat> according to a colophon at the end, written by later hands, it claims that it was written in the hand of Baba Hamparzum Dimonjian. Now, whether, I don't think that the person who wrote that colophon would have lied, but he may have been wrong. He may have thought that it was Baba Hamparzum's hand, but it wasn't. Uh, nonetheless, it is archaic also in the manner in which it makes use of the Limongian notation, so it must be old. 
And the melodies there, if I sang them in a church now, people would say these are very strange things. They're very odd. They don't seem to work. What are they? So this is the oldest source that I happen to know of Armenian hymns that, that, that has reached us. And it does, the melodies there do sound archaic. It's not the complete hymnal, but it is about 80 pages worth of hymns. And some of it is also not very obvious um, uh, in terms of how to read, because the more archaic version of the Limongian notation, for example, had a very limited um, way of indicating internal rhythm. And so much of the time you are not quite sure, should this be a triplet or is it a quaver and two semiquavers, an eighth note and two sixteenth notes or, or that sort of thing. And there are some symbols which you do not find in later examples of Armenian church music notated in this notation. We are very fortunate, however, that the Hamparzum Limongian notation was used not only to transcribe Armenian church music, even though that was the purpose for which it was devised. Uh, but it was used by uh, a lot of Turkish musicians to preserve Ottoman classical instrumental melodies. And that is an area that has been researched quite a lot and quite well. And uh, uh, my uh, good friend and excellent colleague, Dr. Jacob Oli, at the University of Münster in Germany, has succeeded in clarifying a lot of things that were not really uh, known until now. They were rather obscure. And that work is very helpful in producing an edition of that old manuscript as well. So I'm very fortunate that Jacob has done all this excellent work, although he has done it in the domain of instrumental Ottoman music, actually it helps us read uh, more accurately and more faithfully, one hopes, some of these notated sources. And of course there, there are examples of things preserved in Byzantine musical notation of one sort or another, which also, um, for example, there is an introit an Armenian introit, Christos Haryavin Merelot's Christ Rose from the Dead that we sing on Easter Day, um, in a melody that is really quite unique. And uh, now when we sing those words, we just sing, Christos Haryavin Merelot's Mahvampas Mahkochyats, we sing it in a so-called ekphonetic way. We sort of make up the melody as we go along. We uh, follow standard formulae, we repeat the same note in the same way in which someone can chant the gospel or a deacon sings litanies. So people did not even bother to write down the melody because it's not really a melody. You're just singing the same note and then there are ways in which you finish the phrase during the cadences. And that's the only way in which nowadays we sing introits in the Divine Liturgy. But this melody transcribed in the Chrysanthine notation that has survived and has reached us, and which I have recently uh, published, um, this melody is a proper melody. It's a through-composed melody. It's not just an ekphonetic sort of chant where you sing more or less the same note, as the Greeks do also, and as sometimes you find in Gregorian chant as well. It's a proper melody. It's quite melismatic. And because the chrysanthine notation 
the reformed Byzantine musical notation preserves quite a lot of nuances, be they of rhythm or of intonation, this also helps us look back into the further, uh, look back further into the past, and although I would certainly not be so rash as to claim that everything Armenians used to sing would be like that, but it is a very rare example that points backwards uh, into the past, and of course, it harks back as far as the medieval numated introits we find in Manrus Munk manuscripts, musical manuals, specialized musical manuals that had breviary and uh, uh, missal chants, very uh, melismatic, very ornamented and slow chants, most of which these days have been completely lost, many of which belong to genres that are no longer sung uh, in the liturgy, not only in our own time, but during recent centuries, as far as we can tell. And so this uh, introit, notated in Byzantine notation, is something that belongs to the tradition of highly melismatic introits that we find in medieval manuscripts. Of course, you may ask, and do the two correspond to each other? And unfortunately, the answer is no, they can't correspond to each other. Uh, you may say, but how do you know if you can't read the neumes? Well, we can't read the neumes, but you can reach certain conclusions by looking at the distribution of neumes on the syllables of text. So on a particular syllable, there may not be a neume at all. And on another syllable, there may be a chain of neumes. If you compare that to the melody, you see that the long-sung bit is on a different syllable, so the two could not possibly correspond. Um, but nonetheless, uh, this transcription in Greek notation is a remnant, it belongs probably to the tail end of a tradition that is medieval, as attested by manuscripts, numated manuscripts from the 13th and 14th and uh, 15th centuries. Uh, you also indicate the hybridity of Armenian music on many levels, like how we reconstructed historically and how it was done in the 19th century with medieval humans. And when I used to study in Armenia for a very long time ago, I felt that some were seeking for originality or purity in Armenian music. So, in your opinion, what shall we do with this aspiration for purity? Is it something achievable? Uh. Well, this is, this is a, an excellent question, and it is something that I've thought about for a very long time. Um, this uh, aspiration for purity, um, uh, what a beautiful way of putting it. Um, it goes back, of course, to Gomidas, who, when he wrote to Catholicos, uh, I think it was Kevork Izmirian of Blessed Memory, asking him uh, to tell Bishop Dertad to let him borrow a manuscript that Bishop Dertad would not let him see. Uh, sometimes you think that nothing has changed since then, but anyway. Uh, so Comitas wrote a letter to the Catholicos saying why he needed that manuscript, because he thought that that manuscript will help him solve the problem of deciphering the neumes, and why? Because he would like to restore... Armenian uh, sacred melodies to their celestial purity, 
to use the words of Gomitas. Um, and what did celestial purity mean? It meant removing ornaments, abandoning variants that were more melismatic and adopt the shorter ones, the ones where you don't sing for a very long time on a single syllable of text, and abandoning intonational nuances that sounded oriental or sounded too eastern. So allow me uh, for a moment to explore a little more what exactly this craving for purity and the search for some imagined purely Armenian ancient uh, musical idiom may have originated from. Um, there is evidence to suggest that until the middle of the 19th century, Armenians were quite happy to sing what they were singing, but one influence from the West was the desire to give fixity and permanence to the melodies that were sung. So the tradition was a living tradition that had a certain amount of plasticity and fluidity, particularly as the meaning of the medieval neumes uh, was no longer known. So um, it was subject, as it was then perceived, it was subject to change. Now, you could argue that probably it was subject to change a good deal before then as well, because you cannot suppress the creativity of church musicians. And if you uh, want to know why is it that we were not able to read the neumes in the 19th century and probably several centuries before that, often people say, oh, because of the massacres and the destructions of the monasteries. Well, of course, that must be part of the truth. But I think that uh, it is also likely that the church, being conservative, uh, expected that manuscripts would be copied from generation to generation with the same neumes reproduced more or less accurately from the uh, late 12th, early 13th, mid-13th century onwards, until the, until the 19th century, you find that the hymnal neumes are more or less the same. Yes, inaccuracies do creep in. Some simplifications do occur, but they were faithfully copied. So, it was expected that the neumes would be faithfully copied, but church musicians being adventurous and creative and resourceful probably started singing more and more sophisticated melodies, melodies that corresponded to their own tastes and to their own aspirations, and so the melodies may have become different, they may have become more sophisticated, more melismatic, and so the church musicians would continue to look at the same neumes, but sing what they wanted, and they were interested in adopting things that were new and were interesting, being creative as they were, and they were not so interested in the probably much simpler and, to their mind, blander melodies that may have corresponded to the medieval neumes. And in those circumstances, a lot of change occurs. So change probably occurred a good deal before them. But church musicians in Constantinople realized they felt threatened about change, more or less at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. But they were still not unhappy about the melodies they were singing. When did they start being unhappy? Well, 
already in the middle of the 19th century, uh, there were people like the Grand Chukhajian, and in Constantinople there were operetta performances and so on and so forth, so their ears were filled with Western uh, music, and that had an influence. And there you find that uh, you have arguments in the press, uh, some people saying that Western music is superior, and some saying, no, our traditional Armenian music, which is Eastern, is superior. Some of this correspondence is uh, even comical, because, of course, nowadays we can say, why have to choose between apples and oranges? If we enjoy apples, that doesn't mean to say we don't appreciate oranges. Indeed, the more we eat excellent, tasty fruits, the more our palate is able to appreciate any fruits that we eat. But that wasn't the mentality of the time. So, that started to happen, but that was still, as it were, something that did not necessarily question the quality of the musicians that had traditionally been sung in Constantinople and elsewhere. The real problem, the perceived problem, started when the first generations of young Armenian intellectuals, not just musicians, but musicians as well, be they from Constantinople or from the historical Armenian homeland, were sent to uh, European universities to study. So they went to places like particularly uh, Paris, but also Berlin, St. Petersburg, and uh, other cities in Germany, and these were theologians, they were writers, poets, and musicians. And uh, this happened at the very time when, in places like Germany, for example, in the aftermath of Wagner's legacy, uh, nationalism had become very important in music, and national musics were being founded, or an awareness of the nationalist element in music was becoming more acute. And that is the very environment in which Komitas studied and others also studied. And we have descriptions of people who uh, were sent to Paris to study, and they attended, I think it was Easter Eve or Christmas Eve, I'm not quite sure, but uh, during the evening preceding one of those major church feasts, uh, uh, these young students went to uh, the Armenian Church in Paris, the Church of St. John the Baptist, where that same evening it turned out that from the gallery of the church, Gomidas was accompanying Armenak Shah Muradian, who was a celebrated Armenian opera singer, who sang in La Scala and at the Opera Comique in Paris. And the uh, writer of the description says, this is when I finally realized the purity of Armenian style, and this took me back, as it were, centuries to ancient Armenian times, before it was all polluted by the Turkish and Eastern um, uh, style. So, look at the paradox. Someone was accompanying uh, on the organ, and an, a professional, fully-fledged, opera singer who sang on stages in Paris and in Italy was singing Armenian church music, 
And this is what was being perceived as authentically traditionally Armenian. And when such persons were returning uh, to Constantinople having studied, and they went to a church, they would find what they perceived as being the nasal, oriental, Turkish style of their own ancestors as being foreign and undesirable and in need of purification. So, in my opinion, this was very much illusory. It was an illusion because surely it does not stand to reason that singing in an Italian operatic style be closer to a traditional authentication to Armenian style rather than what actually was transmitted through a more or less unbroken tradition. Particularly if you consider that even in medieval times, Armenians uh, spent centuries under Arab rule. If you go back even further, Armenian royal families were closely related to Persian royal families. So uh, it is very reasonable to expect that art of all sorts, including music, would have been enriched via mutual interactions. And suddenly, in the late 19th century, Armenian students, finding themselves in Europe, beginning to crave for something that sounds more European. Why might they have had such a psychological predisposition, you might ask? And of course, we have to think of the general atmosphere during that time and the political climate as well. It seems to me that Armenians were inclined to regard as what they saw uh, to regard what they saw as the christian european powers civilization as poten potential saviors who if only they could be convinced that we armenians are like them then they would come and rescue us from the increasingly onerous and cruel ottoman yoke in those circumstances, of course, Armenians were much more inclined to find things in common in their own culture, in common with Western European culture, and considering that which was their own legacy as being backward and defective and polluted and in need of purification. And we find Komitas Vartabet, we have a, a transcript from one of his lectures he gave in uh, France, in Paris. So we have Comitas arguing that the old Hamematkes bears the influence of uh, Kurdish or Turkish oriental uh, uh, style uh, of an undesirable and inappropriate nature. And apparently, we don't, sadly, we don't have recordings of his demonstrations, but he apparently sang it once in the way in which it was sung in Constantinople, in other words, bad. And then he, he sang a version that he felt was purified and more noble and more likely to correspond to the ancient, genuine, pure, unpolluted Armenian style. In fact, Gomidas probably did not realize that Hamematkes is not an ancient Armenian ode and you cannot find it in old Armenian manuscripts it was composed on the basis of Ottoman models uh, by Baba Hampartum Limonjan. And so Gomidas was trying artificially to 
purify, if I may say, purify in quotation marks, something that was composed explicitly in the Ottoman style, and it was not ancient at all. But this was the prevailing mentality. Now, regarding your own experience in Soviet Armenia or post-Soviet Armenia, um, even the very uh, discussion of interactions with the Ottoman tradition was unacceptable. Robert Atayan, in his monograph, very heavily criticized Spiridon Melikian for daring publish a uh, uh, small tract where he tried to draw attention to features that uh, the Armenian sacred musical tradition and the Byzantine tradition had in common. Now, as it happens, that work by Spiridon Melikian is not particularly advanced. It is rather primitive and it's uh, vulnerable to criticism. But um, uh, Roberta Tehan criticized him so very much that uh, he criticized him of nihilism and he found it necessary then to add a couple of sentences uh, uh, saying that uh, you know, fortunately, uh, Melikian has also done work to serve Armenian music more recently, i.e. he is not a national traitor. <laughs> so that was the uh, attitude that uh, prevailed. And dare I say, that attitude seems not to have changed very much even at the present time. It is a great pity because it is something that very much blinkers um, and limits Armenian musicology that is still, uh, I, I wouldn't even say that it's just based on Gomidas's ideas, but Gomidas's ideas have been rendered even more extreme. Gomidas was a very gifted musician, he was a genius, and he did a lot of things ahead of his time. And if Gomidas had more evidence available to him, he would probably have refined his views and broadened his outlook. Gomidas, though he was a genius, especially as a musician and as an arranger of songs with wonderful piano accompaniments, innovative harmonizations. Uh, his liturgy is a first-class masterpiece, perhaps the greatest master masterpiece we have in Armenian music overall. But his views as a musicologist do not really um, bear up to the evidence that is available to us now. And not only have they not been revised, but they've been taken even to further extremes. And a couple of years ago, when I was giving a keynote lecture uh, on the occasion of a book presentation, a festschrift, in honor of the Reverend Dr. Vrej Nerses Nersesian, I was invited to give a lecture and I gave a talk uh, about work which was inspired by a volume that uh, Father Nerses had very generously presented me with uh, on one occasion when I visited him at the British Library, where I used to go and pay him a courtesy call once a year whenever I was in England, and he was someone who greatly helped me and encouraged me in my first endeavours. So, when during that lecture I drew attention uh, to the fact that uh, a book that he had given me, which had a cover sleeve, which had some of Kabasakalian's symbols that were part Byzantine, part Armenian. Krikor Kabasakalian, a Constantinopolitan musician who was active at the end of the 
19th century, and who for the first time published a book where Byzantine neumes were printed using moving type, as opposed to being printed as a sort of drawing or an illustration. So, you see, the Armenians in Constantinople did that in 1794, long before any Greeks or any others did it. So, when I, in my talk, I referred to that, and I started talking about mutual interactions with the Byzantine tradition, and I mentioned with delight that I'd found uh, a very rare Armenian melody that is based on a very rare Greek melody in the case of the hymn Fossilaron Louis Zavart, Hail of Gladsome Light, uh, having found an Armenian source, an Armenian source that says a deacon called Boros Zenne in the second half of the 18th century or early in the 19th adapted the Greek melody to Armenian words which was rather mysterious because no one knew what that melody can be. And I was lucky enough to find it and I sang the melody. When I said this, a group of very distinguished Armenian intellectual gentlemen, uh, uh, both from the Madanatan Institute and from the Mother See of Holy Echmiadzin, just stood up and walked out of the room. I continued lecturing. I didn't think much of it. And when the lecture finished, those very same gentlemen returned. I began to think that maybe they'd had a lot of tea to drink in the morning and they needed to go due to, uh, you know, a mundane reason. But afterwards, the organizer told me, are you sure that the Greeks didn't steal this melody from us? You see, you upset a lot of people when you said that that melody had been borrowed from the Greek tradition. And I said, but I mean, it is interesting to establish these connections. And we have a lot of very beautiful melodies of our own. We don't need to feel insecure or threatened by establishing such historical interactions. And it is very great pity that nationalism affects scholarship. And uh, um, uh, we have to remember that our forefathers, whether it is in the area of the of in, in the area of manuscript illumination, the visual arts, or even philosophical or theological thought, uh, as well as music, our ancestors, being very creative and part of a truly vital and living tradition, they had sufficient self-confidence to adopt something from their neighbors or from the sister traditions if they liked it. They adopted it, they grafted it onto their own tradition, they managed to give it an Armenian hue, an Armenian stamp, and they managed to uh, make it Armenian, and they managed to enrich the Armenian tradition by doing so. I'm afraid that if we are afraid even to acknowledge that, it must say something about the not very healthy state of our culture, if we find it so very threatening. But our ancestors did not find it threatening. They did not hesitate to enrich their own tradition by doing that. And of course, that fact is acknowledged much more when it comes to the study of manuscript illuminations, uh, because we had someone like Sirar Peter Nersesian, who was an expert in the Byzantine tradition as well as in the Armenian tradition, and so uh, she knew both equally well, whereas in musicology, 
unfortunately, we have lacked people who are familiar with any other tradition but their own, sad to say. But also there's a fundamental reason as well. In the case of manuscripts, you can see a picture, you can see an image on the printed page, and you can find a, a Western uh, gospel manuscript where there's a, uh, an ornamental letter, and you can compare it to an Armenian case, and there is no doubt incontestably that one may have been inspired by the other. That cannot be denied. It's on the written page. There are documentary witnesses to that effect. But uh, demonstrating interactions in music is less easy. It's less, less straightforward because music, uh, particularly the oral tradition, is something that is performed and it, it, it gains its existence in the air of oral actuality and then it disappears in the air it is lost in the ether it is a fleeting moment and it is much less easy to say to postulate that uh, in medieval Cilicia uh, perhaps an Armenian musician may have attended a coronation service at which a Latin uh, uh, melody a Gregorian chant was heard and, and uh, there was some influence uh, uh, we do know, by the way, that in the 19th century and probably even before, Armenian musicians and Greek musicians in the milieu of Constantinople would go to each other's churches and even sing in each other's churches. That is known. But it is less easy to find particular instances, uh, and we have to confine ourselves to um, documentary witnesses, and these are not very many, but there is more that meets the eye, and I have been fortunate in, uh, in drawing attention to some of those, uh, not least uh, helped by uh, some of the leading experts in the Byzantine tradition, such as Professor Christian Trelsgaard of Copenhagen University, or uh, Professor Alexander Lingas of the City University in London. And this is an area that uh, should be explored, and can be very helpful to us in the Armenian tradition um, because there are two respects in which we've got a severe disadvantage compared to our friends and colleagues from other traditions, which is the destruction of the Armenian monastic tradition, not only due to the genocide, but due to the various pogroms and destruction that occurred in the 19th century that is not spoken so much of as the genocide, but which also destroyed uh, the monastic tradition. So the oral monastic tradition was destroyed, whereas the Greeks, for example, have the benefit of a continuous tradition, even though what they had in Asia Minor was destroyed, nonetheless there was enough in mainland Greece and Mount Athos and so on for a certain continuity to have been preserved. And the second area where we suffer a severe disadvantage is that we are not really able to read our medieval neumes, whereas the Greeks, to a certain extent, are able to do so, at least in the case of the middle Byzantine notation, which can be largely read, even though we are not sure about some details, of course, 
of course, the Paleo-Byzantine uh, musical notation we are not able to read. So in that respect, uh, it's similar to the uh, Armenian case. But it can help us very much uh, to study neighboring traditions, to draw parallels, and particularly to focus on points of interaction that can shed light and tell us something about how our our own tradition used to be. And the third area where we are at a disadvantage, although it's not something that that I'm against, uh, uh, it is that Armenian sacred music has been westernized wholesale, almost completely, whereas uh, the Byzantine uh, tradition uh, has been less subject to westernization, although the tendency was quite a strong one in the 19th century. Now, I don't think westernization is a bad thing. What would be a bad thing is if we lose the whole gamut, the whole spectrum, the whole richness of the Armenian sacred musical tradition, which includes things that may sound Turkish to some ears, but which are also part of the Armenian tradition, and they may well be a more authentic part of the Armenian tradition, all the way up to westernization and harmonization and the use of the organ. The use of the organ in Armenian churches uh, can be very, very inspiring and beautiful if the organ is played well. Now, it's a different question that it is very, very, very rarely played well. I've only heard it twice or three times in my life uh, being played well. But uh, the whole uh, richness of the tradition ought to be embraced, preserved, studied, and practiced, and not just only one part of it. If we uh, confine ourselves to one part of it and reject a substantial part of our own tradition, that would be uh, nothing short of tragic. It would mean we are relinquishing a very substantial part of our cultural heritage, and it would be a pity to do so. So I may have given you a rather longer uh, answer uh, to your question, but I do hope that uh, I managed to satisfy your uh, your your uh, your uh, curiosity in this. Thank you. Thank you. Very beautiful, interesting, and in fact, empathetic explanation. And uh, as we're running uh, running out of time, I, I have one more question. Yes. Additional, being musicologist, you're also a conductor, so. What are your next plans in both fields? So, what are the next research gaps you're planning to fill in? Right. Well, um, I may have mentioned some of the things that I'm doing, but um, uh, uh, I'm hoping that I can prepare that old manuscript, for example, that I mentioned to you uh, in the Limongian uh, notation in a particularly archaic form of the Limongian notation. I'm trying to understand it better and then provide a transcription using some software that uh, has been prepared uh, together with Jacob Oli in Münster and Vladimir Faltus at the Czech Technical University and myself at the Charles University. That is one. More immediately though, I'm putting the finishing touches on a monograph about the use, the relationship between the verbal text, the neumes, and the music in the odes of St. Gregory of Narek, the great Armenian saint who lived uh, 
in the 10th century, we believe uh, that he died in, in uh, 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 the year 1003. Uh, the earliest manuscript sources are from 1241, which is almost a quarter of a millennium uh, more recent than the life of the author and composer. And so far, the neumes have been neglected. And I'm working towards providing a critical text uh, of the odes, I mean the words, but the neumes are helpful because one of the interesting things that Tendesian hypothesized was the following. We cannot read the neumes, but the neumes may have some metrical uh, properties. They may uh, syllables bearing particular neumes or combinations of neumes or no neumes as the case may be, may have durational values. So if there's a syllable that has such and such a neum, that syllable will last one beat. If it's a different neum, that syllable will last for two beats. We don't know if those two beats are two quarter notes or one half note or uh, four eighth notes, uh, but, but we know the duration. And he hypothesized this in connection with the Armenian hymnal. I'm trying to apply this in connection with the repertory of odes, and here too patterns are emerging. And uh, my monograph discusses these and indicates how the neumes can actually help us choose between different variant readings of the verbal text. For example, you find that where somewhere there's a, uh, a line from an ode where the text was corrupted, there's a syllable missing, or maybe two lines were uh, made to coalesce together, they were conflated and you've got one long line. The scribes who added the neumes, whether they were musicians who later added the neumes or whether it was the same scribe who, added the, the, uh, who wrote the neumes and the verbal text, they tried to write some neumes that would compensate for irregularities so that when you take the neumes into account as well and not just the words, you can get a regular rhythm even when the numbers of syllables differ from each other. And I, I have found some hitherto unknown, old uh, or oldish melodies of some of the odes of St. Gregory of Narek. Until recently, we had melodies to only about four or five of the um, odes. There are about 20, 21 odes. And now we've got six, but we've got several melodies for some of the odes as well. So my monograph uh, discusses the textual tradition, the history of early editions, the manuscript tradition, some theological misunderstandings and misapprehensions uh, in the interpretation of these odes, which are miniature diamonds. They're the most marvelous little masterpieces, very different from the Book of Lamentation, which is a penitential prayer book. These odes are uh, really uh, ecstatic. They are glowing with uh, uh, happiness and joy. They're radiating joy. Um, uh, so uh, I start with those things. Then I discuss the neumes and try to develop a stemma in the case of one neum where you find that there's the interesting observation that where you no longer have regular meter as perceived by the 
as expressed by the neumes, that's when you have a bifurcation, a branching out in the stemma, in the tree that relates how the different manuscripts may have emerged from each other, that sort of work. And then finally, I discuss the melodies that have reached us and demonstrate uh, to what extent, if at all, they may be related to the neumes. In fact, in most cases, the melodies are a good deal more recent, and they do not seem to have any relationship to the neumes. So that's one monograph I'm working on. I've just published my new uh, critical edition of Dvorak's Mass in D major for the uh, publishing company Berenreiter, and uh, uh, I'm also trying gradually to prepare the critical edition of the Odes themselves, although that is uh, further away in the future. I have another monograph also uh, uh, that discusses the music of uh, the Armenian hymnal, but unlike the small book, Tandesian in the music of the Armenian hymnal that we're discussing now, covers also the Venetian and Vienna traditions of the Mechitarist fathers, which are of particular interest and on which I've published fairly extensively recently, and I'm preparing even more work, and which also covers the uh, relations with the Byzantine uh, tradition. I have a monograph that I need to uh, edit and complete that uh, is devoted to Krikor Kabasakalyan's work, including a complete English translation of the tract that is included in, in the 1794 volume, um, and which has elucidated a lot of things that were hitherto mysterious and undeciphered and considered undecipherable. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, things that are in the offing, but one needs to find gaps between one's other activities uh, so that one can advance these uh, projects. And there are several articles that need to come out very soon and for which I've, I'm facing deadlines. In terms of my conducting activities, as you might imagine, sadly, but of course understandably, because of course we want the health and safety of our musicians and singers and of our audiences to be paramount, but uh, sadly, um, as you might imagine, we had a lot of plans for the most wonderful concert programs uh, in recent months, all of which had to be cancelled, including, of course, events to pay tribute to the Beethoven anniversary this year. So uh, I was going to conduct Beethoven's Mass in C in a program that would start with the Coriolan Overture and then the second romance for violin and orchestra. Um, I'm still hoping that it may be possible to revive that program and perform it before the end of the calendar year, whilst we are still in the anniversary year, but we shall, of course, have to see what the epidemiological uh, situation in Prague is. And uh, one of the programs I was particularly looking forward to uh, conducting was a Nordic program. In recent years, I've been uh, uh, immersing myself more and more in the music uh, of composers such as Nielsen and Sibelius. I had the honor of conducting the uh, Czech premiere of the magnificent Hymnus Amoris, uh, it's a secular cantata in Latin for chorus, large orchestra, and soloists by Karl Nielsen. And uh, on May the 11th, I was due to conduct the Czech premiere 
of another work for chorus and orchestra by Nielsen that had not been performed in the Czech Republic before, called Servnen, which can be translated as Sleep, a most magnificent work. And uh, that I had coupled with the Helios overture by Nielsen and uh, uh, Sibelius's third symphony. So I'm hoping that these things also may be, uh, may be included. And there are uh, a lot of other plans as well for um, a lot of interesting repertoire, Austro-Germanic, French and Czech orchestral, symphonic and choral repertoire. But of course, I hesitate to mention these things because we don't know what exactly is going to be possible. Naturally, uh, of course, musicians do not like being deprived of the possibility of making music together, but we have to give precedence to people's health. Uh, and and uh, about that, we are all in agreement. Uh, one thing I was able to do with my own chorus and orchestra at Charles University is that in lieu of uh, weekly rehearsals, which we were no longer able to have, for my chorus, I would have weekly sessions in which I would help give technical exercises and warm up the members of the chorus, would switch off their microphones and each in his or her room uh, warm up their voice so that they do not lose their technique. And then we would work on some of the pieces that we had been preparing. I would go to my piano in my room and I would play the accompaniment or play particular parts to help them learn and not forget and to keep the chorus in action, as it were. And with our orchestra, I tried to turn this severe limitation into a creative advantage by having weekly sessions, motivational sessions, on repertoire and interpretation. So with each of the pieces we were due to perform in the season, I would have one two-and-a-half-hour or two-hour session with a PowerPoint presentation and my singing and playing them recordings of different uh, works and uh, looking at things from a musicological and interpretational perspective so people would mark their parts I would have a scan of the score and we would go through certain details uh, in, I hope, a reasonably interesting and enjoyable way, as well as listen to some interpretations of people like uh, Otto Klemperer and Pierre Monteux and my own uh, teacher and mentor, Carlo Maria Giulini. Uh, and I would tell them some of my own memories the first time I conducted a particular piece or the first time I heard a particular piece, why I've chosen it. Uh, what the composer was doing when he was writing that piece, what we can find in letters that he wrote to different people, what he composed just before and just afterwards, and what were other people doing uh, uh, at about the same time. So these things you cannot do when you're rehearsing an orchestra and you've got 60, 70, 80 people in front of you with their instruments. You try to talk as little as possible and, and allow them to play. Uh, but we were able to talk about these things during those weekly sessions because we were not able to play together. So we tried to change the disadvantage into a creative advantage, as I said. But we very much hope we will not have to do that for very much longer, but we'll be able to go and play together. And the first thing that we are hoping to do is to meet with a reduced uh, formation, a smaller number of some of our best string players 
we shall gather together at the Church of the Holy Spirit in the center of Prague and start rehearsing Dvorak's Serenade for Strings, which is something I haven't conducted for a very long time, and his Nocturne for Strings and Puccini's Chrysanthemy. And we hope that something with social distancing being, being maintained and with a smaller number of players and no singing and no wind players, it may be possible to revive the orchestra through this uh, path stage by stage and give a couple of smaller concerts to start with and hope, uh, meanwhile, that uh, the epidemiological situation will remain reasonably positive as it is in the Czech Republic, although it has been uh, a little less good in recent weeks than before due to the fact that people are being less careful. So we shall see what the future brings, but there are a lot of plans and God willing, sooner or later we hope to realize them. And you know, sometimes my experience is that there have been pieces that I've very much wanted to perform, but for different circumstances I've had to wait. And uh, one doesn't like waiting, of course, but Afterwards, I was very grateful because by having to wait and conduct something uh, a few years later than when I first felt ready to do so, I'm sure that I interpreted those works rather better and in a more mature way for having waited a little while. So let's say that it will be like good wine that will mature and become sweeter if, uh, if indeed we are obliged to wait a little longer. But we hope that that doesn't uh, happen and that we can get on with making music together uh, as soon as uh, circumstances permit. Thank you for this very interesting discussion. And I highly recommend Hayek's research, not only for musicians and musicologists, but rather anyone who wishes to get acquainted with Armenian music culture. Thank you.